Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. Um, I'm Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be able to gather with you today, to be able to worship Jesus together. Um, and as we continue, just one other announcement that I wanted to be able to make sure to highlight this morning, and that is that um, we as a church, the elders have unanimously and enthusiastically approved a new elder candidate that we have presented. Um, it's John Hodma who's here. It's John, go ahead and stand up. <laughs> All right, well, in spite of that great reception, um, John has been presented so that we have four weeks' notice to the members before he can be affirmed as an elder. Um, and so, um, the, if you have any, if you would like to affirm John's candidacy, or if you have any concerns or any questions about that process, you can come to me directly or send an email into elders at redemptionhilldc.org. Let us know, and we'll be glad to reach out with you. You can get in touch with John directly and, and get to know him. Um, but September 6th at our members meeting, we will ask the members, um, barring anything unforeseen, we'll ask the members to affirm his eldership in our church. So that's an exciting development for us. Um, this morning we are starting a new series in the book of Galatians um, that is focused on the gospel, the true one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but as we prepare to pray and to get into that series, I want to pause first to be as clear as I can um, as your pastor to be able to speak into some of the events that have happened this weekend just a few hours south of us in Charlottesville. I want to be clear that for us as we open God's word to see a, an entire letter that is fixated on celebrating the simplicity and the purity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what we have seen in Charlottesville, and the elevation of any race over another is a false gospel that is evil and that is from Satan himself. White supremacy in any form is evil. Now, as we come together as a church, we come together to proclaim and to celebrate that Jesus Christ in the true gospel is one, it has made it so that the dividing walls have been torn down. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that through Christ, through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down in his flesh. He has abolished the law and commandments expressed in ordinances and has made in himself one new man in the place of two seeking peace. That through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. And so we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so we want to be clear as a church that we affirm that all people are of dignity and worth because they bear the image and likeness of God, and that we as a church are committed to work to bring unity in wherever, where all other false gospels divide us. 
And so as we look at, one, at the one true gospel, we need to be clear that one of the implications of the gospel is to affirm that all people are made in the image and likeness of God, that we come to God through Christ, and that we are unified together, and that the unity in Jesus is only made more beautiful in the diversity of the people that he calls to himself. And so let's pray, and then we'll open up the book of Galatians. Father, we come this morning and are again confused and dismayed and heartbroken at what we see in this world around us. Father, don't let us look away and don't let us distance ourselves because we're here in the district and that's south in Virginia. Father, stir our hearts to be able to see you more clearly but we also cry out and say, please bring justice. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring an end to violence and hate, bring an end to sin and to racism. As we were just singing, we believe that you are good, that you are light in the darkness. And so we turn to you this morning and, and plead with you that you would bring us peace even in the crippling fear and confusion and brokenness around us. Father, as we as a church continue to, to gather together in, on Sundays in our community groups as we scatter into our city, we plead with you that you would help us to be able to see clearly and cling to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you would use us as your instruments for reconciliation and peace. And even as we open your word this morning, we ask that by your spirit you would convict our hearts, but also stir us to hope and to healing. And pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. October 31st of 1517, a monk in a small town in Germany um, had a troubled soul and he, with like trepidation, went to the, essentially the bulletin board of his town, which was the church door, and he wanted to start a theological debate. He was troubled by some of the things he was seeing in the church at the time. At the time, the only church was the Roman Catholic Church, and so um, he went to that church door and he, and he nailed 95 theses to the front door of the church. Theories, ideas, concepts that he wanted to stir a, a conversation over. And what he didn't realize is, is that this monk who nobody knew about, who had kind of backed his way into monasticism, um, had, had re that his 95 theses would be a spark. And that spark would set off a powder keg of tensions that had been building. See, he was troubled by a practice called indulgences, that, that, the, that Rome was selling time off of purgatory, as if that's possible to sell time off of purgatory. He was troubled by other things too, by, by sacramentalism and, and, and other issues within the church. And so he's trying to bring a little bit of reform to it. But Martin Luther didn't realize that what he did in that action would set off the, a string of events like, a, like, a, like dominoes falling that would actually change world history. 
And so that, the 500th anniversary of that day is this fall on Halloween. Um, Phil has try, is trying to convince me that on the, the Sunday around Halloween, we should come and have traditional like Reformation dress. Um, I'm not buying it. Um, unless he gets the Augustinian monk haircut. <laughs> if he does that, I will, I will preach in a, a frock. And so there's, there's my deal. <laughs> um, so, but over the next few months, what we are going to do is we are going to look at the book of Galatians. Um, we, the, we are part of the Reformation stream because we as a church aren't Roman Catholic. And if you're not Roman Catholic and you're a Christian church, that probably means that, you have, that we've been influenced by what happened 500 years ago. And so as we look, as we head toward the 500th anniversary of that event, we are going to, we're going to look at the book of Galatians because Galatians was one of the letters in the New Testament that was particularly important to the points that the reformers were making and to the arguments they were making. And what we'll see is that in the original context of what was written and what the apostle Paul was wrestling through and dealing with, that some of the same issues that were happening in the earliest churches came, were still happening in the church 1,500 years later. In the, in, in, that spurred the Protestant Reformation, and they're the same issues that we continue to wrestle with now. And so over the next several months, we'll look at Galatians and see the original context of what was happening in that letter as the Apostle Paul wrote it, but we'll also do it just with an eye toward the Reformation, and, and then bring it into our lives and see how, it, how these same theological convictions and these same battles are important to us now. And so in that, there's really two major themes through the book of Galatians, that there's one gospel that needs to be clung to with, with purity and simplicity, and then Christian freedom, that, that, that there is Christian liberty that, and freedom that comes from it. And so this is what we have. We begin our study in Galatians today in chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 1 with me. It'll also be on the screens. And so this is what we read. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, God, of our God and Father." to whom be the glory, the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a little bit of, of context and what we're coming into in this letter in Galatians. There's different theories, of course, like any New, any New Testament letter on, on the timing and when this was written. Um, this is one of the few letters that, that almost no one disputes is authentically Pauline. That nobody said, there, even critical scholars say, okay, we, we think the Apostle Paul wrote this one. And so, authorship isn't really debated. The timing is, and there's a couple of different theories about where it is and when it was written. The theory that we're going to, going to stick with that I'm most convinced by is 
is that this letter was written to a region, to churches throughout a region, to the churches in Galatia. And the theory is whether it's a northern or southern area of that region. Um, But it's most convincing to me that this is Paul's first letter that he wrote. And it's written to the churches that he planted at the first. And so if you go to Acts and read about Paul's first missionary journey when he was sent out in Acts 13 and 14, and he bounced through what is now southeastern modern-day Turkey, and he went to church and he planted churches in Perga, in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derbe. These were in a region called Galatia, and I believe that this was a letter written to those churches. And so Paul had planted those churches, he had appointed elders in all those churches, and now he was writing a letter back to them. And what we'll see throughout the letter to the Galatian churches is that he was facing debates on authority. They were questioning whether or not he was a legitimate apostle. They were questioning the sufficiency of Christ. And there were were issues of extra practices that had been brought into the church and were being demanded as a part of what it meant to be a Christian. And so Paul writes in and, and, and emphasizes the, the purity and simplicity of the gospel and the importance of Christian freedom. And these are the same kinds of issues that would surface again 1,500 years later as Luther took up his mallet and nailed his theses to the church door. Now, Galatians' beginning is unique among Paul's letters. If you read Paul's letters, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. And as you read them, usually Paul's letters start out with thanksgiving. Even the letters to the church in Corinth, which Corinth was off the rails. They were going crazy and falling into all kinds of, of, of bizarre practices. Where He was writing to them, talking about the misuse of spiritual gifts. And, and he wrote to them saying, hey, you guys have somebody that's sleeping with his dad's wife. And you're celebrating it. And, and they were falling into temple prostitution in all kinds of, of bizarre practices. And even to the, to the church in Corinth, Paul writes the beginning of 1 Corinthians and he says, he thanks God for that church. And he writes a thanksgiving, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And it's this, he, he is praising God for the grace given to them. And that happens in every one of his letters except Galatians. Galatians, we see Paul says, hey, here's the beauty of the gospel, but then we get to verse 6, and there's no, he wastes no time with thanksgiving. There is no buttering up for the Galatian churches. There is no sugar-coating things. He begins in the first words we have to him after the opening greeting. He says, I am astonished that you've so quickly deserted him who, or are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you can imagine why Paul was astonished. This was the man who had planted these churches. He had, he had seen the fruit of the gospel there. He saw the new life in Christ that had come up in the people of the, uh, in this region. He had, he, had, he had installed leaders that he entrusted these things to and had, had said, be faithful to these things. And yet, he knows that they're turning away from it. And so what are they turning away from? Well, we're given a gift in Galatians because he does start with a clear proclamation of what the gospel is and that there is one gospel. And so if our entire series is going to be focused on one gospel, we'll begin by talking about what the gospel is, what that word means. Gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion simply means good news. 
And so the gospel is good news. That word appears 76 times in the New Testament, and it occurs seven times in the first two chapters of Galatians. So it may be a minor point of emphasis that he has for us in these first couple of chapters. He might say that it's a little important to him. And so what we see is right at the beginning, Paul says in the beginning of verse 3 there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us or for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, God, of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He began it by saying this, that he's an apostle not from men, not through man, but through Christ and God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. And so this is is the gospel. He captures it beautifully and powerfully, compactly in these first few verses of chapter 1. So it's not like he's ambiguous either with the Galatians when he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him and turning to another gospel. He's making clear, hey, here's a little reminder for you on what you actually believed. Here's a reminder for you on what you're abandoning before he turns to say, I'm astonished. Now, what we see in this first section of Galatians was also something that the reformers wrestled with, and, and they were trying to recapture what the gospel is because things had become skewed in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church in, the t in that time. So the, the reformers were starting to recognize there were things that were off base, that were consistent with scripture, and, and as they dug back into God's word through Romans and Galatians and, and Paul's letters, they started to see themes emerge, and the, those themes have been captured since in five solas. And sola is a Latin word that simply means alone. And so we see the five solas show up here. The first is scripture alone. Sola scriptura. I had a discussion last night with Alyssa. We were sitting around the table and, and I was like, hey, what would be most helpful here? Do you think it would be most helpful for me to put the Latin terms up so people could see that? Or do you think it would be most helpful to put up like a translation of the Latin terms that's simple in just two words? Or should I have like a phrase that explains it all out? And so this is what she said she wanted to see. Um, so I hope that that's cool with you. Um, <laughs> um, she said the Latin was a little bit too nerdy and that I might lose everybody in the process. So, um, sola scriptura means scripture alone. And it, now, what we see here, Paul doesn't actually talk about scripture alone, but I think what we see here is, is Paul's affirmation that it is God's word alone and God's authority alone that establishes his apostleship and establishes what the gospel in fact is. And so with the reformers, they were wrestling with this, that there, was, there were authority structures that had developed within the church, and, and the reformers came back and said, if these authority structures co contradict God's word, the Bible, and what we have in it, then it is the Bible that is the ultimate authority, it is God's word that is the ultimate authority, because his word is always higher and more valuable and more trustworthy than men's. And so Paul here has the same argument. He says, listen, when he defends his apostleship, and it feels audacious to read this, doesn't it? When we read this and we say, and if we can imagine somebody saying, hey, I am appointed as a leader, but not from men or through man, but only through God. Now for us, that would be audacious. Paul had a unique experience. He was somebody that was a racist bigot that was pursuing and killing Christians. He was someone that, that, was, that, 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 was, that was standing opposed to Jesus' church. 
and was complicit in a stoning of, a, of, a, of the first Christian martyr. And he was on the road to Damascus, and as he was, he was knocked off his horse by a blinding light, and Christ came to him himself and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so he was called directly by Jesus. He had a vision of the risen Christ and was called into apostleship to be an authoritative voice for Christ to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And so Paul is able to say, unlike any of us, he's able to say, listen, my apostleship is not dependent on the, the appointment of men. It's not because, I mean, today we laid hands on and commissioned new leaders as a church. Today, we announced to you, the church, that in four weeks, we have a man that's been presented for elder candidacy. For us, the way that we rely on, the methods we rely on to, to discern God's calling to leadership in his church are through his word, scripture, and then affirmation from the church. For Paul, he had Christ himself was the one who appointed him. And so he's able to say, I didn't need someone to pull me in front of the church to lay hands on me, to pray for me, to commission me. Christ himself, the risen Lord Jesus, was the one who called me. And so Paul, as his credibility was attacked here, doesn't appeal back to human beings or to councils, that he appeals back to Jesus, to the word of God itself to him. For the reformers, they, they fought against systems of popes and bishops, and they turned back to Scripture alone, to God's Word alone as the ultimate authority. And for us as a church, as we discuss and understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, we need to understand first and foremost that the ultimate authority that we have has been given to us by God in His Word. It's entirely sufficient. And what that means is that God defines His gospel. Not the whims of our, our, our world, not even the whims of our churches. God himself has defined what the good news of the gospel is. What we see next is that it's by grace alone and by faith alone. We're going to pair these together. These two, and so what, what we have a... a, a a capturing of the gospel that, again, concise and packed theologically in verse 3, as, as Paul says that he's an apostle by, by, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who had raised him from the dead. So the resurrection is the core of the good news that he proclaims, but the outworking, the, the impact of Christ's death and resurrection for us is that grace and peace have been extended to us. And these two are held together, and, and it's, it's even allusion to Hebrew concepts here, that, that it's, it's allusions to God's covenant love that has been extended, the grace of God, that he pursues his people in love and in commitment to them to give them graciously his presence and a relationship with him. And then the result of a relationship with God is that we are all given peace or shalom. That's, that we are given a fullness and wellness in God's presence. And so this is, this is a concise summary of the gospel that Paul is pleading with them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, and so the reformers similarly said, it is by grace alone that we are saved. That is God's gift to us. There's nothing we can do. Otherwise, we would be tempted to boast, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. 
And it's by faith alone that we accept that grace and receive that grace, and, it's, and, and we turn to God. And my God, this is good news for us this morning. Because the fact that the gospel is rooted in God's grace alone, through faith alone, means that we can't do anything to earn it, and, and, which is great news because everything we do to try to earn it, try to earn God's grace, only minimizes it. Luther said it this way, he said, therefore God accepts only the forsaken. He cures only the sick. He gives sight only to the blind. He restores life only to the dead. He sanctifies only the sinners. He gives wisdom only to the unwise fools. In short, he has mercy on those who are only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. And so if you want to know what the good news is for us, it's that Christ has been raised from the dead, that God's word has proclaimed it, and that the creator of all things is the one who has, has raised him, that he invites us into a relationship with him, and the only prerequisite that we have is not that we get ourselves cleaned up, it's not that we get our mindset right, it's not that we get our po- ourselves to the point where we're holy enough or righteous enough or sinless enough. The requirement that God has for us to be able to receive his grace is that we are sick and blind and broken. And so that we can come to him and we can receive healing and sight and wholeness. God's word tells us there's hope. There's grace for us. And if, our gra- if, if grace is rooted in God's work instead of ours, then no one can take it from us. And we see that that grace and peace then bring us to the fourth of the solas, that it's in Christ alone. That God's grace has been extended only through Christ. That it, our faith that, is, that saves us is only in Christ. Well, why? Because of what it goes on in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So it is in Christ alone. That God provided a pathway for us, but it's only in him. And Christ gave himself. That he went to the cross for us to deliver us from this present evil age in accordance with God's will. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't a plan B. God planned to do this. It was ordained that this would happen. And he, he provided a way for us through him. And so that we can, we can have, again, that we, when we look around at the brokenness and hopelessness of this world, we have the opportunity to have hope that there's actually a source of healing. It, now, again, this is something that I feel like there may be times and seasons when we hear this kind of language and say, okay, deliver us from this present evil age. And it might feel like that's overstatement or we wonder, is this age is really as evil as it can be? It feels like that's not an argument we really need to have this morning. We do see the brokenness around us. Whether it's the tensions that have developed in the Korean Peninsula, whether it's whether it's what's happening, again, a couple hours south of here in Charlottesville. The, the spirit of this age is broken, and it is, there's vitriol and hate that is emerging that, is, that just seems ever more present. It's, there's hope for us here today, that in Christ alone we have hope that we can be delivered from this present evil age. In Christ we have hope that he says he's, he is coming back soon and that he will bring justice 
and righteousness, that there'll be an end to sin and division and brokenness. And Jesus had this, made this promise to his disciples before he, was, before he had resurrected and ascended, before he had gone to the cross. And John captured it in John chapter 14. He's, he's saying to them, let not your hearts be troubled. For some of you today, this may be what you need to hear coming out of this weekend. It's Jesus' words to you, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, have faith. Believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, and I go and I'm preparing a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then we get this gift because Thomas speaks up, one of his disciples, who we've come to know as Doubting Thomas, but I'm so grateful for Thomas because of the amount of doubts that I face in my own life. And Thomas speaks up and he says, uh... Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How, how can we know the way? Jesus had just said, you know the way, where, the place where I'm going. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Christ is the way to God the Father. He's the way to grace and peace. He is the grace of God extended to us that brings us peace. And even in the beginning of Galatians here, in these first few verses, we see what Christ did, that he gave himself in our place for our sin, that he took on the penalty that we deserve for our rebellion against God, for our unholiness. And he then gives us his righteousness. That is the grace of God. And that is what brings us peace that is guaranteed for us. We get glimmers of it now and we are guaranteed it forever. And so it's by grace alone, in, by, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. And then the fifth of the solas is that it's to the glory of God alone. Which is what we see here, as, as Paul closes it by saying that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, one of the things I love about reading Paul's letters this is that, that he does this where he'll, like here, we're just at the beginning, right? We only say the word amen as we close prayers, typically. And it's kind of like our signal that we're done praying. Like, it's okay now. Like, we're in a, if we're in a corporate service, I did this earlier when I prayed to introduce the sermon. And when I say amen, you kind of like go, okay, I can lift my head and start like shuffling around and look at my phone again. And, and it's, we have a pause. And Paul here, he barely gets started. And, he, and he, he ends up worshiping God as he, even, even before he gets to the, to the verbal spanking he gives the Galatian churches that follows. And it, it, as he starts writing the letter, he can't get three verses in before he's praising God in a, in a state of worship before God, proclaiming God's glory, saying that this is what Christ has done for us. He's been raised. The Father has raised him from the dead. He gave himself for our sins. He has delivered us from this present evil age. This has been God's plan for us, that his his grace has come to us. His peace has been extended to us. And he, and he says, and this is all for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. And you see, it's that then that sets up his astonishment. 
We said this to the Galatian church. How could you walk away from this? How could you turn from this? You see, everything's to the glory of God. That is, that is the, the first and primary reason that we have been created as human beings. God made us in his image and likeness so that we would reflect his glory. He made us so that we would, we would show off his brilliance, that we'd reflect him like a mirror. He said, this is our purpose. This is, it's not, it's not a secret if you read God's word on why we exist and what the meaning of our lives is. The meaning of human existence is to glorify our creator. He's entrusted us with the world that he made, that we would be his representatives in it. And, and he's called us to reflect him into this place. And what Paul was facing, and is in many of the churches he planted, was that, that what had happened was that they were turning away from the pursuit of the ultimate glory of God over all things, and instead finding glory for themselves. And this is something we all wrestle with. We are inherently closet narcissists. We care deeply about ourselves. We want to show off the radiance of our glory. And, when, and what happens then is then you see this because we posture ourselves with people in order to try to reflect a little bit of their glory or get some of the shine of their glory, and it's, it's, a, it's a weak, false glory. This happened with the Apostle Paul, that, that Paul had churches that would attach themselves and whole groups of people that would, the churches would divide over who they were following and say, what kind of Christian are you? And then we see this again in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, they would say, well, what kind of Christian are you? Are you, like, are you a Peter Christian or a Paul Christian? Or if you're really spiritual, well, I'm just a Jesus Christian. Paul's <laughs> like, is Christ divided? What are you doing? And even here in Galatians, we'll see as we go on in this letter that, that you have people that are adding all kinds of things on top of the law, that, that there's a point in chapter 2 that we'll get to where Paul ends up confronting the apostle Peter himself publicly because of divisions that are existing in the church. This happened with the reformers in the Reformation, and it still happens with them, that people attach themselves to different schisms even within the Reformation, that there couldn't even be unity among the reformers. And it still happens today. Look at our politics. It's not enough to have a party affiliation at this point. And for, for many of you, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, it's difficult to have a wholesale buy-in to either of our major political parties right now. And so even within that, you, there's a quick clarification, right? What kind of Republican are you? Which guy in the party is the one you're actually following? What kind of Democrat are you? Which one, which one were you working on the primary for? And we see there's ways that we leverage that because we're trying to attach ourselves to the glory and the progress and the track of others. This happens within Christianity too. We continue to divide where, where now we'll have like, and we, we have to decide which pastor we actually align with. And so we have celebrity pastors and we, it's amazing to me that Christians think that anybody else cares or knows who these celebrity pastors are. Saying it's celebrity pastors, saying it's like a tall jockey. 
so you have like, what, who, who are you? Are you, a, are you a John Piper guy? Are you a Tim Keller guy? You Mark Dever guy? I mean, he's right up the street. If you say you're a Bill Rydell guy, I'm terribly sorry for you because no one will care. <laughs> but we do this, we attach ourselves to people. That's why it gets devastating for us when people don't come through on what we hope they'll be. When politicians don't fulfill the promises we thought they would hold. Or when they show up on the scene and they go a direction and we just go, how did this happen? And it's devastating. This is why for Christians, when celebrity pastors fall, it's devastating to people is because we've attached ourselves to them. And what we've done is that we have taken an approach that says that we are reaching for their glory and trying to get it to rub off on us. Well, the reformers were clear in saying over and over and over again, no, it is to the glory of God alone that we live and work and minister. The Apostle Paul was clear, it is to the glory of God alone. We read this in Acts 17, even as he presented the gospel, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's not, actually not far from each one of us. See, what Paul is saying there is, is that we fall into traps of religiosity where we really believe that the things that we do in our hands serve God in a way that impacts and changes what his glory is. And Paul's saying, no, he's not made, he doesn't live in temples we make. He's not served by the things that we do. He doesn't need anything from us. He is the source of all life. He is the source of all breath. He is the source of everything that we have. And in fact, he is, he is the one who is, who is the source of, our, of our, our proximity and the timelines of our lives. He is the one who has placed us where he has, when he has, for the sake of his glory. And that is our only hope. Martin Luther said, grace is given to heal the spiritually sick, not to decorate spiritual heroes. So this is why then the apostle is so astonished in chapter one. He says, there is one gospel. The second part of our text today is that there is no other gospel. The astonishment here is, is language that appears throughout the New Testament. It's used all over in the Gospels. That people, it's the word thamadzo, and it, was, and it was usually a reaction to Jesus. And so we see this language used, this astonishment, when Jesus did incredible things. When he shows his power over nature and stills the wind and the waves by simply saying, hush, be still. The disciples were astonished. When Jesus healed a blind man, when he healed a crippled man, when he cast out demons, when he showed his power over nature and over sickness and over the spiritual forces of evil, when they marveled at his great knowledge, it says that they were astonished, awestruck, couldn't speak, jaw dropped, don't even know how to process what they're seeing before their eyes as the, as the kingdom of God broke into their midst. That's the language that's used. 
And it's the same word that Paul uses here, but it's not a positive astonishment at the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's him saying, what are you doing? I don't even know what to say. He's coming as a spiritual father, the same way that parents do to their kids sometimes, when they say, what are you thinking? The most honest thing kids can usually say is, I don't know. <laughs> but to the Galatian churches, he was saying, what happened? I'm astonished. You're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. It's not that there is another one. Gospel means good news. There's one gospel. But you're turning to something. He says, there, there are people who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But, but do you hear what he goes on to say? Even if we come to you and preach another gospel, other than the one that was preached, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that we are saved. If any other gospel is preached, then we should be cursed, damned to hell. He doesn't stop there. He, he shows himself first to say, if, if we or the brothers with him, saying, if I preach something different, then, then we should be cursed. But if an angel from heaven should come and preach something contrary to the gospel that is preached, the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be cursed. In verse 9, in case you didn't get this, as I said before, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Church, we need to hear Paul's words here. That if we claim to be Christians, to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is no other gospel. And if anyone preaches anything else, we need to be aware of it. We need to call it out. We need to be sure that it doesn't infiltrate and take root in our hearts, in our minds, in our church. If I come to you at any point and preach a gospel other than the gospel of Jesus Christ that stands contrary to God's word and its authority, that stands contrary to the grace of God shown in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that, that adds on works righteousness on top of the call to, to have faith alone as our response. If I preach a gospel that is in any source other than Christ alone or has any outcome other than the glory of God alone, you ought to call me out on that. The elders of this church need to stand firmly to call that out. Don't let me get away with it. If anyone comes in and preaches a gospel contrary to what we have received, what is listed for us in the first five verses of Galatians 1, then, then Paul here is saying, let you, be, let you be cursed. We need to hear this because we need to return regularly, constantly, daily to be reminded of the purity of the gospel. We need to cling to it. Never let it go. 
By nature, we're going to drift away from it. By nature, we're going to turn away from it. By nature, we're going to try to find our way around it. It's, I mean, we, we act like toddlers, and we don't even realize it. Um, my nephew, we just spent a week on vacation with my sister and her family, and my nephew Silas is a toddler, which means he lives his life on a constant suicide mission. All the time, trying to find ways to kill himself. Like eating medication he's not supposed to eat, digging in the garbage like a puppy all the time. Every time the dishwasher would open, he was grabbing for the knives. <laughs> Just constant suicide mission. If you've had toddlers, you know that. I remember it from when I had toddlers, but I, it's been a while. Simon's coming up on eight in a couple of weeks. And so it's been a while since I had to like constantly be aware of those kinds of things. But, but there's a reality with toddlers. Like if the gate is open, they are down the sidewalk. If, if you say, come here, they think it's a game and they go the other way. It, if you say sit down, they'll stand up. If you, if you, they can, a toddler can go and like point to their stroller and want to walk, and then as soon as you try to strap them into it, they're thrashing their body to try to get out. Like you can ask, are you, like, are you tired? And they say, uh huh. And then you try to put them to bed, and they scream. They don't even understand why they're rebelling. It's not like a, they don't like think through. You know what? I'm going to ask for a walk, and then I'm going to scream when they put me in the stroller. It's not like a thought process. It's innate. It's just what they do. It, 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 that's how we are. That is, that is the reality of our hearts toward God. That we'll say, this is fantastic. God's grace has come through to us through Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Praise God that all we have to be is sick and broken and need healing and wholeness and that God provides it for us. And then we go, but what do I need to do to earn it? Yeah, but what about these things? I think these rules should be part of it, and other people around me aren't following it. So yeah, I know that that stuff is all true, and that what we gain through the gospel is peace and the grace of God, but, but I would really like some stuff. And there are preachers that tell me I'll get stuff. So I'm going to listen to them. And so we, we desert God and turn and run away from him. And that's why we need the daily constant reminder. I need the daily constant reminder. That is why every time we gather together every Sunday, all you will ever hear is the remedy to the problems that we face is the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have nothing else to offer you. This is the hope that we have. It's, it's that, that we have hope in Christ and it's in him alone. In the Galatians, we see throughout this letter that people were reintroducing the law on top. They were demanding circumcision. They were, hold, they were holding festivals and days rigidly, and the calendar was seen as an issue of holiness. In the Reformation era, they faced indulgences and sacramentarianism and finding different ways that you, were, you necessarily had to work through established structures in order to actually receive God's grace. And our problem is that we do the same thing. At times, it'll come as outright denials of Christ. Those are easier to address. I mean, we see that, and we need to be willing to call that out. That's what happens in false gospels like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. This is what we see again in Charlottesville, that white supremacy is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Yet, many of the unmasked, torch-bearing young white men, that was the most disheartening thing to me about the pictures that I saw. 
is that this isn't an old person problem as if it's just fading away and the new generation of millennials is going to be more open-minded and, and actually embracing of all people. It was young white men. They didn't have to hide their, their faces with masks because they weren't afraid of losing their jobs and they weren't afraid of the, of the churches they go to disciplining them for their sin. We see it in prosperity preaching, which I already mentioned, that when we hear false gospels of comfort and success that are more valued than Jesus, those are clear for us. We need to be clear in calling them out and identifying them. But my guess is, for most of you, if you are a Christian, that typically it's more subtle than that. It's the subtle additions that we make. It's Jesus and other things. It's what we do or don't eat or drink. It's, it's what, what your church involvement looks like. And rather than being involved in the church as, an, as a response to God's grace, you look at your involvement in the church as what's earning you God's grace. And the real way to tell that is if you're completely exhausted by your involvement in serving the church, it's probably a clue that you're look, leaning on it to gain you something. It's your theological knowledge for some of you. For some of you, you're like, yes, the five solas. <laughs> he should have put them up in Latin. <laughs> I have Calvin's Institutes. He's only quoted Luther. What about the lesser reformers? <sighs> your theological nerdery won't save you. And sometimes it can become a false gospel. It can be good deeds or your bleeding heart. And the problem is that we all, that all, uh, that we all have is that we take the good things that God gives us, the things that God's, God calls us to, and we elevate those things to try to earn us our righteousness before him because it's a way for us to be more sure because we feel more in control. But if we add anything to the gospel, it only diminishes Christ and glorifies ourselves. So church, we've got the next several weeks heading toward Reformation Day on October 31st um, that we're gonna study Galatians. We're gonna saturate ourselves in this letter. We're gonna saturate ourselves in the clarity and simplicity of the gospel. We're gonna see the implications of it. We're gonna see the importance of maintaining the purity of the gospel and also Christian liberty and real Christian freedom that results from it. And as we look for that, though, today, today we start with a clear proclamation of what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that through him grace and peace have come to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, would you help us? Our hearts are so fickle. Our minds wander. And we live our lives too often in the pursuit of our own glory rather than of your glory. Father, would you forgive us for the false gospels we buy into? Would you help us to feel the conviction today that, that for some of us, if the Apostle Paul was writing to us, he might say the same thing, say, I'm so astonished that you're so quickly turning. Would you help us see too that if we repent and turn back to you, that your grace 
and your peace are waiting for us through Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.